0: It's movie time, and it's a brand new season uh, on Movie Time, and welcome back, everyone. Uh, I bet that you missed us entirely uh, for an entire summer, but hey, guess what? We're back, we're hot, and we uh, are ready to rock with our very first uh, guest of the season, Franco Sama. And... With me tonight, of course, is our host Kinte. Hey. Come on over, Kinte.
1: Hey, how you doing? I'm I'm so happy to be here tonight. Uh, it's very hot and humid here in Los Angeles, but I'm I'm a try to stay cool during the interview. So if I if I disappear for some crazy reason, it's probably because I melted away. So uh, I believe that very that's cool. It. Now, um, of course, you know we always love participation on this show. And the way you can participate is dialing our number. And the number is area code 323-522-4601. Uh, once again, that number is 323-522-4601. Also, you can come to our website, indyradio.org. That's I-N-D-Y org. All right. So um, uh, before we get into our guests, um, I think you should tell the audience some the good news that we found out today about the show.
0: Absolutely. We are now officially an I Radio television and radio show.
1: All right.
0: We have, we have now hit the official country.
1: That's right. I, I, congratulations, too, by the way.
0: Thank you. Yes. We did it. Nope, there's no going back now.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So uh, I know you've, you've worked so hard on the show. And I'm just so happy for you and the show. And I'm looking forward to uh, what comes next.
0: And thank you, iHeartRadio. Bless your uh, your hearts.
1: <laughs>
0: we plan on giving you many, many, many years of great movie experiences. All right. And with us tonight we have our amazing uh, launch of the, our very of our uh, very first iHeartRadio season, as well as also uh, season uh, what is this now? Season four of uh, three. movie time? Three, three. Three, wow. Mm-hmm. Just yesterday it was one. It's like, and our wonderful guest is Franco Sama. Hey Franco, how are you doing?
2: Hey guys, I'm doing great. How about yourselves?
0: Doing awesome.
2: Excellent. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm so uh, honored to be your first guest of the season and on this uh, special occasion. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah.
0: It's like, it's one of those things that you're just going like, oh my goodness, it can only go up from there.
2: (laughs) So hopefully
0: we break iHeartRadio with like 1 million followers.
2: (laughs) That would be wonderful.
0: That's our next goal. Mm -hmm. So for everyone out there, can you tell me a little bit? Mm -hmm. Uh
1: Uh-oh, I'm sorry. I think we... uh, Yep. Oh, there you go, Gray. There you go, Gray.
0: All righty. Franco, can you tell everybody a little bit more about you? Well, sure. Um,
2: Well, my full name is Franco Sama, S-A-M-A. My company is called SamaCo Films, uh, samacofilms.com. Located here in Los Angeles. My office is actually in Brentwood, California. Uh, I moved out here from Boston in 1997. And uh, my first job was as a publicist, or a celebrity p- publicist for a photographer. that did celebrity photo shoots. So I was um, right out of the gate. I was fortunate to be able to work with people like Francis Ford Coppola and Will Smith and Gary Oldman and just all kinds of really great, amazing, well-known people as part of my the publicity work. And uh, But I always knew I wanted to be in the entertainment business. and. I never really had that gene, you know, that I wanted to be famous so in front of the camera. I was always much more curious about what was going on behind the scenes. And then eventually, in uh, 2005, I opened my first production company with a business partner then, and we did three, four, five, maybe films. They were all horror movies back then, um, because it was a great way to get started and get our cut our teeth, as they say. And get some credits and make a few bucks and move forward from there. And then my first film that ever went to theaters was actually in 2007. It was a movie called Tooth and Nail, uh, starred um, Michael Madsen and Denny Jones. And that was sort of the beginning for me. Once I had a film that went to theaters, that sort of catapulted me into a different place. And then... I just kept going on from there. I think I've got something like 23, maybe films on my belt at the moment, independent feature films, and I am counting. I've got two that just came out this year, and God willing, I'll have three going into production before uh, within the next 12 months. Let's put it that way. That's sort of me in a nutshell. <laughs>
0: very cool and so it's like from the from the earlier days also on to today it's like it must have been a rapidly changing transition it's like during during the earlier years where it's like independence were really considered to be independence today it's also considered to be there's form of independence and then there's independence then there's um many majors and majors etc
2: yeah, I think it's a little cooler these days to be independent. Back then, you know, we were sort of the stepchildren of our time. And uh, But, you know, if you really look at the landscape in the past several years and you look at all of the independent films that have won Oscars and many other awards, the, the, the industry and the I think the public at large is, has really shifted their perception of what independent film is. Um, it's It's still very gritty, I think, and uh, there are so many changes like you said i mean i can't even begin to explain from what I started till now some of the changes that have happened in the industry as a whole te- technologically speaking and in terms of the distribution models it's been it's been quite a uh, a road to take but I think that's what makes it fun and exciting is that it's always something new and different and there are new challenges every day that you have to face and, and overcome to could continue to produce quality film.
0: Absolutely, and it's like there is—it's like every single challenge has been so. In terms of that, I would kind of love to know—you know—what kind of challenges do you encounter most when taking on a project today versus also yesterday, as well as also when taking on a new project.
2: Well, you know, things were different back in those days, and I, even those days, I, you know, I jokingly say, you know, the old days was five years ago. I mean, you don't have to go back that far, but if you go back even ten, you, there used to be a time when you would be able to walk in and pitch a story on an idea. You didn't even have to have a script or a treatment written. You could just pitch an idea, and you could get it sold. Um, that's still true very often and the in the studio system, and it's still true in TV in some cases, but. In my world, in the independent film world, it's a completely different conversation. Getting an independent feature film made where you have to actually raise money and and distribute through a distribution company or sales company, it's, it's all real manual labor. I mean it's very, very difficult and the challenges I find, um, when people present me projects, the biggest problem, I think, is the lack of preparation or pre- presenting a project too soon. I spend a lot of time managing people's expectations because a lot of writers and producers and producer-writers and slash, you know, directors, mm-hmm. they, they still have that, that idea that somebody's going to just write them a check because they're going to love the idea so much. And then they're gonna get the movie made. And trust me when I tell you <laughs> although that does happen on occasion, that is not the way it works. That's not the norm. And because of that a lot of them just don't understand that there's a
3: huge
2: step that has to be taken after they write that script, which is um the development stage. And so many people either don't understand the development stage or they They want to bypass that stage and try to get somebody to just give them the money that they need to make the film. Now, I have an adage that I say to people all the time, getting the money isn't the hard part. Getting the money back is the hard part. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's where my focus is, is in terms of, can I get this film made? But also, are we going to be in a position where It's going to be A, attractive to investors, and B, attractive to the extent that I can actually demonstrate how, when, and where, and why they're going to get their money back at some point in time. And I think that that's one of the fundamental challenges I encounter the most is that the screenwriters or the producers aren't really prepared for that conversation. And then once we have that conversation, then they're forced to have to make some choices that they weren't necessarily
1: prepared for. Now, you, you bring up a great point uh, about being attractive to investors. Um, what exactly do you mean by that for the audience? And um, how do you mm-hmm. make your make your product att- attractive to investors without losing, you know, the the film's purpose or or goal or you know? Well,
2: I, I think the thing to understand about investors is investors are are, are are who they are for one reason, because they, they want to make money. That's mm-hmm. what they're in the game for, whether it's real estate or any business, any, any industry, right? Anybody who invests money, there's an expectation that they're doing it because they want to, they want to make money. Um, that's why they're investing. And the film industry isn't and shouldn't be considered any different. So you, just the same way you have to have a roadmap or a business plan to convince an investor to invest in your hot dog stand or your your coffee and donut shop, you, know, you, you still have to be able to demonstrate how many hot dogs you're going to sell and who your market's going to be and where your location's going to be and all those things that you would do. Well, a movie is the exact same thing. Um, it's treated a lot differently, but investors don't understand a script or a story. In fact, many of the investors never even read them. They don't, they don't know the difference. They might read it for their pleasure but they're not reading it from the stance of is this something i can invest in because they simply don't understand that language so it's my responsibility to help the filmmaker make their script into something that's investable by bringing in elements that make it attractive to an investor that are going to show some kind of return at some point in time those things being Bringing in a casting director, bringing in a production attorney, having somebody that's going to do a, a budget and a schedule that's going to be accurate. Um, there's so many different things that you have to do during the development stage. But okay. the good news is that when you get through the development stage, which costs money, by the way, you can't you can't go into this thing with zero dollars and, and expect somebody to write you a check for three million. Um, but once they have those elements and those components, then suddenly it starts to look attractive to an investor because based on those elements, we can then project what the value of that return is going to be in both the international or the foreign marketplace and on the domestic side as well. And we can actually present empirical data that says to an investor, you know, yes, these are projections. But they're, they're solid projections from a reputable company, and this is what we anticipated the profits are going to be. Now they have something that they can understand. It. We put everything in perspective of the language that they speak instead of expecting them to understand the language that we speak.
0: So it's making it respons- uh, the responsibility towards the investor to be able to speak their language and understand what they are looking for in the project, not yeah. necessarily what uh, what it is that you're looking for out of their investment. It's putting yeah,
2: it value. I, I, I've seen people go up to, I've seen people in investor scenarios, and all they talk about is the story and the characters and the arc and the twist and the, and the investors in there were just rolling their eyes. They have no idea what they're talking about. And they're thinking, how does this make me money? You know? mm-hmm. I that sounds great. This is a great story. I, I'd love to go watch the movie. I'll pay the 12 bucks and sit in the theater. But you haven't shown me why well, I should give you $3 million to do this. Mm-hmm. True. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so do you find that there's a, a particular kind of project or do you have a story of a, a, a project in particular that you found that was more difficult than others or something that was just a little bit more challenging over the time?
2: Well, look, you know, it's interesting because I've had projects that have, from the moment they arrived at my front steps to actually being put on the screen, has um, been as little as, 10, 12 months, and I have projects today that I've been on board for four and five years that have just haven't taken off yet. You know, for me, film projects are like kids. They're like children, you know. Everyone has, every each one of them has their own quirks and strengths and weaknesses and personalities and issues. So, in a sense, they're all the same in that regard. They, they're, they're just different from each other. And then it just becomes a matter of what the market's going to bear. And what the other thing I tell filmmakers is there's no way of predicting how people are going to respond to your material until you put it out there. So I have people come to me all the time with a wish list of actors that they want. And then we go out to cast and actually speak with the talent or the agents or the managers. And in some cases they get turned down by everybody on their wish list and so, even though it might be a great project, maybe it's just not the right time for that project. So, you may need to put that one on the back burner and then bring something else up, which I think is an important point I want to I want to make to people is that, you know, I do believe it's important to have a project that you're focusing on that you're out there working hard to pitch and sell and get made. But at the same time, you really should have several other projects because if you you know, focus just on that one and it, it is the wrong timing or for whatever reason people don't respond positively to it, you really don't have a backup plan and you're going to end up being disappointed. Whereas if you had four or five others that you could fall back on, you could always pull back into the, into the bucket, pull out something else and go, well, I understand that you don't like this, but how about this? And, and maybe you might get some attention on the next
0: button absolutely it's important to have that variety and field in there so it's like and also because each of those aspects like everything from the casting process straight on through the producing process the financing process distribution process even though they're all separate yet they're still connected to each other from Mm -hmm. each perspective what do you look for in a project that makes you want to take it on
2: well honestly it's really the people the people and the project. I mean, because, you know, there are some crazy people
3: <laughs> in this
2: town and in this business. And there are some really great people. And what I'm looking for in the people is I want them to be committed. I want them to be flexible. I want them to be teachable. All of those things, to me, that's somebody I want to work with. When I have people that come to me and say, well, I don't want to change a word in the script. Or I know it's 188," Pages, but I'm not going to cut a single word or a single page off the total. Then I don't want to deal with that because that's just not that's just not good business. It's just not good a good way to operate, and it just doesn't get things done. Um, and then the same is true of the script of uh, scripts and projects. I get great scripts, and then I get horrible scripts, like just unreadable scripts. Um, so really the best scenario for me is really good people with really good projects. That's what I'm always looking for. And I would rather have be working with producers who have um, less at at stake, but more commitment on their part than people who are just out trying to get anybody in town to write them checks so they can get their movie made. Especially if they want to go beyond the producing and they want to you know, I have people come to me they, with a project that's 2 or $3 million, and it's their first time, and they want to star in it, they want to direct it, and they want to produce it, and they wrote it. And they want $3 million for it. And it's just an unrealistic expectation. So it's really about putting things into perspective and helping them understand sort of what the rules are and taking those steps and maybe making a smaller movie first and then graduate into the bigger budgets later.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, um, now I, kn- I know it's a business, but also, you know, uh, you want to have fun as well. Is there ever a point where just being in the nuts and bolts part of this industry, does it? Is it ever, like, just not fun and, you know, and maybe contemplating, you know, I don't know, uh, doing something else. I mean, is it, does it ever get to that point? Or is it always the ups and downs is what makes it exciting for you?
2: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, no, there are definitely times when you want to just go, you know, you know, live on an Island (laughs) (laughs) and get away forever. Uh, or go, yeah, go, go try to do something else, which I'm not interested in, you know, I've devoted my life to this, but, um, yeah, it's a tough business. I mean, I don't, I don't, I think until listen. When I hear somebody say that they got a movie finished, I get invited to a lot of screenings, even if it's a short film. My right. attitude's always the same. If you're, if you're successful at actually completing a film, even if it's not a great film, I really honor and respect those people because I understand how difficult it is to take all those steps. You know, whether you're making a a short film that's 10 minutes long that costs $5,000, or you're making an independent feature for $3.5 Um the actual steps in the process is exactly the same thing. And to get to the other side of that is, in many cases, a miracle. I mean, I tell people all the time, they look up my filmography and they see all of the movies on there, and they like, oh my God, you've made so many films. And I say to them, listen, for every film that you see on there, There's probably 30 or 40 films that I didn't make. Mm. It's a tough, tough business, especially, like I said, if you want to go independent. And the reason why most people do go independent, and, and it's one of the reasons I enjoy independent film, is because as an independent, you have a lot more control over your project. You have a lot more creative control than if you went, and sold it or sent it to a studio system or even one of the mini-majors. And you certainly have a lot more control over the the money and the financing and the profits and all that other stuff. So that is one of the big pluses to doing an independent film. That said, you give up a lot. You give up the network of the studio system and the support of the studio system and the money of the studio system, and and you're literally out on your own. And in my case, I I just wouldn't have it any other way. I I, I just love it too much.
0: Hmm. Which makes sense, because then in that uh, that way, also uh, being an independent, you also do have some freedoms, but uh, it's like you also do still work with the studio system as well.
2: Right, right, exactly.
0: It's one of those beasts of that you get to have both worlds.
2: Yeah, the best of both, yes.
0: So when you aren't directly, though, involved in the project, when you're, uh, when you're EPing versus uh, directly involved, is, it's your baby uh, on the line. Is the criteria then any different for you? And if so, uh, uh, how?
2: Yeah. Well, the criteria isn't necessarily any different for me, but the, my experience is. For example, uh, if I'm executive producing or a consulting producer on a film, uh, I'm more of an arm's length away where I'm assisting with things like acquiring funding and attaching the name talent and securing the distribution, basically packaging the deal and putting it together. I'm often quoted as saying, if you were the producer, I'm often quoted as saying, your first day on set is my last day at work. It means basically I've done everything I've needed to do. Now you go and make the movie. Now, of course, I get back involved again after the movie is finished because then there's the whole distribution route. Uh, whereas as I'm the actual producer on the film, I'm much more hands-on throughout the entire process. And you'll see me on set and, you know, being a part of the day-to-day. Whereas with the, as an executive producer, many times I, I'm not even on the set. I don't even, I don't even meet many other people. Unless, of course, putting, the... On, yeah Uh, uh, unless of course what
0: unless of course the guarantor shows up and then absolutely be on the set
2: (laughs) yeah well unless there's somebody that i really want to meet (laughs) like like a big movie star or something. (laughs) but for the most part yeah i mean all that's been done way prior to to any of the you know principal photography for example
0: absolutely and it's like you've also mentioned earlier also that the industry has changed and it's evolved, it's like an ever-evolving. And so what do you think has like been the biggest evolution that has happened and how it's like how has it changed, how movies have been now chosen to be made?
2: Oh, by far, the answer to that is technology. I mean, when I first started, we only shot on film and it was usually 35 millimeter. 35 millimeter film, uh, and 35 millimeter was very expensive. The film itself, although sometimes you could get it for free, uh, for free, but for the most part, when you're shooting on film, you can only you didn't have as many takes, um, so things were very different. And today, everything is digital, which I think is a good thing because now filmmakers can shoot the same scene hundreds of times if they need to, and even the editing is is simpler and it's less expensive. So I think technology is a huge part of the evolution of, of film in the last decade, and it's going to continue to be. Um, and then the other thing that's changed a lot is the distribution models, and for a lot of the same reasons, because technology has brought us Netflix and Hulu and iTunes and uh, streaming, and you, know, you don't even have to leave your house anymore. To, you don't have to go to the video. There's no more video stores. And, and I can see a day in the near future where there, there isn't even a red box because it's just uh, not necessary. Everything's going to be available at the touch of a button. And we're so rapidly moving towards that. I mean, when I first started, all of our money that we made on a movie came from DVD sales and rentals. That, those are the days of Blockbuster on every corner. Mm-hmm. And that's how you that's how you could project your revenue stream Uh, For your investors, just to say, look, this is how many hot dogs we're going to (laughs) sell. This is how many DVDs we we expect on this particular film. And then you put all your marketing money behind that. And now it's not even the case anymore. It's all literally the touch of a button on your phone or your iPad or your television set or your computer screen at at home or at work. So I think uh, technology, technology, technology is the answer to that question.
1: Uh, another thing, too, is uh, where they're actually making the, the films. Uh, I know in the last 15, 20 years, it's really changed. Uh, Los Angeles, where I'm from and where I'm at right now, um, you know, it, a lot of productions are made outside of Los Angeles. Even if the film is based, is supposedly set in Los Angeles,
3: they film yeah. it in
1: South Africa, all in Toronto, yeah. Vancouver, uh, New Zealand, yeah. all the, all over the world. Uh, and yep. um, what do you think about this? And uh, do you think what do you think LA needs to do to get some of these productions back home?
2: Well, I, I think I, I think that that's well, it's certainly been one of my frustrations. I mean, look, there are definitely benefits to shooting in LA, um, but to answer your question, to go back to it, is that really the reason for that is because of the tax incentives that have been offered, not just in the United States and other states within the U.S., but all in countries all around the world now, mm-hmm. you can shoot with these huge incentives. So that's what started this whole thing, is when Canada originally started with the tax credits um, and incentives, and then people flocked, if you remember, to Canada first. Mm-hmm. That's where it all began. And then all these other states in the United States started to perk up and go, hey, why don't why don't we do that? So you can get Twenty thirty percent back in some instances. So for every million dollars you spend in a particular location locale, you may get three hundred thousand dollars back. So that's a huge incentive to shoot in those states. And up until recently, California has been behind on that. It's Mm -hmm. been lacking. You know, we just came out of a lottery system where you literally they'd pick your name out of the hat if you were going to get a tax credit on. It was just bizarre and absurd. So. They haven't put something a little bit more interesting together, but it's going to take a while for that to take effect because people like me don't necessarily benefit from that. The big studios do, and the TV shows that are running series do, but the small guy, you know, that does five, six movies a year, isn't necessarily going to benefit from that the same way. And like you said, I mean, we have to find ways to—we call it cheap, you know, to cheat for Los Angeles or cheat for New York to make someplace in New Mexico look like, uh, <laughs> you know, Central Park. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and we do it. You know, we do it all the time. And it's because it's, at the end of the day, it's worth it. But the other thing I wanted to mention is even then, again, and remember, I'm doing a low budget, one to $5 million movies. So when you're talking about that budget range, it doesn't always pay off to go to that state and to uh, receive that incentive. And the reason is because now you still have to travel out all of your cast and all of your crew. You're going to put them up. A lot of the time the cast wants first class and they want five stars and they want limousines and all that other stuff, which we usually can't afford. Whereas if I shoot the same movie here in Los Angeles, I can send a, an Uber driver to their house
1: <laughs> <right>. <laughs> to
2: pick them up and bring them to set and they can sleep in their own bed every night and their families. And so for that reason it may be better to shoot here, shoot local, and forego the tax credit in those other states.
3: Hmm,
1: interesting.
0: It's a matter of counterbalance of uh, what makes more economic sense. And do you need it, it yeah. to serve the, store, uh, serve the story as well?
2: Yeah, and you really have to take it on a case-by-case case basis. I mean, What we usually do is we narrow it down to three places, which also means, by the way, I'm probably going to need three different budgets right? Because I'm going to have a very different budget in Canada than I'm going to have in New Orleans than I'm going to have in LA. So I have to have the line producer who's creating my budgets has to be pretty fluid. They have to be able to really understand the tax laws in all the different places. And I have to be able to put a pencil to it. And this is strictly just on the financial side. But like you just said, we also have to look at the creative side. And sometimes you just can't make sense of it. Now what you can do is you can shoot the majority of the film in one place and then you can send a second unit out to the actual locale where this is supposed to take place like New York City or whatever and you can do some second unit shooting and you know do some establishing shots and that kind of thing so that you can edit that in and make it look real.
1: As a producer um, can you talk to the audience about how important it is to assemble a great uh, team, because people don't realize, I don't know if the <laughs> average person realize how many elements that it comes together to make a film. And for the, for the film to be any good, you need pretty much all the elements hitting at top levels, you know, at top level efficiency. So, um, yeah. as a producer, um, can you kind of speak to how important it is to, to have all of these, you know, departments and everything come together and, and picking the right people?
2: Yeah, well that starts at the beginning. It starts with the development stage of having a team to even get to that point, mm-hmm. which is what we we were, I was talking about earlier about having a casting director and a production attorney and a line producer and even a post-production, production supervisor, uh, and a, and a, um, a foreign sales consultant and a domestic sales consultant. That's the first team that you're to put together to even get to that point. And then, assuming that all goes well and you get your team as a result of putting a team together you're able to raise your financing now you, you really want to get moving on your crew and what i find is really it really starts with the director um in the dp and if you have a strong director and a strong dp most of the time if you're lucky these people already have their own pe- crews of people that they work with that are already fine-tuned and they already work well together and they actually all own their own equipment so that saves you on rentals and some of these people even have their own trucks so things that you would normally have to spend money on you can include as part of the package when you hire them so a lot of the times i do rely on the key people to bring in everybody else because people like to work together over and over and over again. I I do. I know every time I get a new deal, there are four or five people, I automatically pick up the phone and call and hope that they're available. And if not, I always have some backups. And that's true when it comes to your your crewing as well, making sure that you you have all of those people. And then to me, probably the two most important people are the first AD and the line producer. Mm -hmm. Um, And that line producer is really ultimately responsible for everything, every day. It's a really, really hard and thankless job. And if you have a great line producer and a really good first AD and there's good communication between them and the director and the DP, you're gonna probably have a really successful shoot. How the movie comes out is a different conversation in terms of visually, but in terms of work, working together and work ethic it really starts with those people and, and goes from there.
0: Almost definitely having a good team is a, a wonderful thing. And you were mentioning earlier, though, that you like working in a certain budget ranges. So what kind of budget ranges and genres do you usually like working in?
2: Well, um, my what, what we call a sweet spot. My sweet spot is one to three. used to be one to five, but basically one to three and although i have made several films under a million dollar range um so and the reason for that has been simple is because you get the money back sooner so i'd rather make a film for 1.3 million dollars and have the money returned to the investors and everybody profit within say 18 to 24 months than me personally i wouldn't want to risk going making an eight or a ten or a fifteen million dollar movie where it could potentially take considerably longer. Um, in terms regarding genre, I like, personally, I like thrillers, all kinds of thrillers, psychological, crime, any kind of thriller. Uh, but I do like to explore as well. Uh, I also like to keep, keep my finger on the pulse of what's selling, because I don't want to make a movie in a genre that nobody's watching. So, and if you view my my uh, history, my filmography, you'll see an array of genres, including horror. i got a couple of dark comedies on there. I have some action fil- films. And so I do try to find that balance between what I, what I like as a pr- person and as a producer, and what I, I know based on the research and the relationships I have in distribution, what I know that I can sell um, to the marketplace
0: so are there things that you'd avoid like entirely that absolutely you're sitting there going um sorry but you know this isn't for me um
2: it's a tough one i mean um there's there's usually a market for everything it's just a matter of the demand right so for example like family movies there's quite a demand for family people i, I also can distribute films that are already finished. So I'm out there looking all the time for finished projects, and when I'm looking for those, I'm looking for action films and family films um, and thrillers. But when it comes to sort of off-limits, there isn't anything really that's too off-limits. If it's too dark, then it's going to be too slice of life. It's going to be really hard to find an audience for it. Um, so there are some of those projects. A lot of the times you hear people with their quote unquote passion projects and mm-hmm. they're sort of more docudrama drama than they are feature independent entertainment, you know? And those are really hard to sell. Um, so you gotta just be careful in terms of that. And for me, I'd rather just not have to take the risk and go for go for things that, that I feel are gonna that people are gonna wanna watch. And um, and uh, so far, I've, I've been relatively successful with that.
0: So, things that are more commercially driven, as opposed to something very, very passion project, infringed. Yeah,
2: I, I do believe that there'll be a time when I'm when that is what I'm going to be wanting to do and looking for. But right now, I'm just sticking to what I know, and because what I know is working. And for now, I'm I'm okay with that.
1: Hey, because if you take a bath on a movie, financially, I think the passion
2: will go right out the window. It's <laughs> so, awful. Let me yeah. tell you something. There's nothing worse. And this is what I try to tell these new, young, know, up-and-coming filmmakers, you know? I mean, these guys come out of film school all the time, and they, they spend tens of thousands of dollars on film school, which I'm not knocking. I think it's incredibly valuable to go to film school because you walk away with this with this knowledge and experience, and you uh, but, but And what happens is you walk away from film school knowing how to make a film, but you also walk away not knowing how to get a film made. Right. And there's a huge distinction there. And if you don't know how to get a film made and you don't know how to get a return on investment and it's your first or second time, and you figure out a way to get somebody to let you a check for a million or $2 million, and you can't return that money, It's going to have a domino effect that could potentially ruin your career because you're at that point, you're known as the person who who lost money, and the investors whose money it was that you lost, trust me when I tell you they're going to be shouting from the mountaintops about what a terrible investment they made in the independent film community, and as a result, that's going to have a domino effect on all of us. Right. Because they're going to go to the next, you know, golf next time they go play golf, or the next time they're at the 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 country club, and they're going to make sure that they tell everybody that are their friends who could have been potential new investors to the future had we succeeded. Um, yeah. To stay away, to stay away from us. <laughs> so we don't. Well, it want makes that.
0: sense. Absolutely, it's the financial responsibility of making sure that yeah. they get an ROI. Exactly. So in terms of that, do you like then uh, projects that are more full start uh, driven or element driven or are you willing to take on new – like uh, when you're looking at a team, it's like do you look at also new or up and coming ones that do have some bankables for the investors or do you consider – like what do you consider to be bankable in a project?
2: Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's really important. Um, most of the time, look. Here's the reality. The reality is most of the time, people don't have bankable names attached to their projects because they don't have any money yet, and you can't get the money. You can't get the the, the names without the money. So what I try to tell them to do, I would rather have a, script, a project company unencumbered. You know, I would prefer to have no director attached, no stars attached. A really good script that has been vetted out and is for real, you know, a good project to work on in, in a good genre range. And have the producer come to me with even 20% of their financing in place because the money is the most important aspect of this when you're trying to construct a deal with investors. And there aren't any investors that I know of that are willing to take 100% of the risk on somebody else's dream, right? So if the movie is a million dollars, and I go out and ask for a million dollars, I'm asking my investor to take 100% of the risk. And investors just, it doesn't bode well with them. Most of them won't do it. But if I came to them, which I do, and I say, listen, I have 250,000 already in, in, in the bank, and I need you to come in with the rest, Now I have their attention, and because of that, I can then go out and actually make real offers to real actors, you know, real talent, and go through that process. One of the worst things I think a producer can do, and people do it every day, is they try to attach talent when they don't have any money in the bank. So they're making offers through the agencies to the talent that they can't even support they can't back that offer with any cash. So even if the actor read the script and said they want to do it and then want to accept the offer, it's the producer who then cannot fulfill it again because there's no money in the bank to do that. So for me, I'd rather have them have a little bit of money in the bank, a good project and no attachments. And then the money will bring the attachments and the director and the stars and the distributor and everything else will fall in place after that
0: so it's okay though also in terms of that it's like to have fewer elements uh, also as well it's like where you as long as the money that there is something behind it whether it be from a source of what uh, whatever it is in terms of do you want it to be in terms of tax incentive money or do you want something no
2: no it, it needs to be no because tax incentive money isn't real either because it doesn't happen until yeah. you until you you know what I mean it has to be real live equity and that's why most people get into troubles because they don't have any equity whatsoever and they're coming into this thing with nothing and they're asking other people to do all of it and that really is a problem um, so I think it's important Producers, to, and there's ways you can do it. I mean, it's, it's another whole conversation, but there are ways to, to, to go out and do that. But the important thing is that they should have some skin in the game. And I don't mean them, I'm not saying that they have to go out and mortgage their house or, you know, or whatever, they borrow, and steal on their own. I'm just saying they have to have resources of their own that are willing to participate in this, in this project um, so that. The other investors don't feel like they're being required to have to do all of the heavy lifting. they all want to share um, that risk they they want to mitigate the risk as best they can
0: yeah, so they want to make sure that there's at least something that stands behind it that is being taken by mitigating the risk out to another investor or investor yes. Yeah.
2: For example, I'll give you a perfect example. I have one investor group right now that, if if I if I do let them use the tax credit, like you mentioned earlier, as sort of a a form of collateral, and if I'm also in a position to be able to acquire a minimum guarantee based on future sales from a distributor, uh, from a reputable distributor, if I. If I use both of those as a form of collateral, they will extend themselves and actually put in the cash equity required to do the movie as well. So it's really like a little puzzle that you have to put together. And you just got to make sure that everybody gets what they need out of the deal and that we're not relying on one person to take all the risk. That's really what it comes down to. It's about having skin in the game and mitigating risk for investors.
1: I have a, another question, and um, I, I wonder how much uh, thought is goes into this. But let's say you get an investor, and you know they, they they get you know the money, they give you the money, but then you start to question um, how they make their money. Um, is that you know maybe it my it could potentially be illegal or something like that? Um, how much is on you to figure that out beforehand, and and if you start to question that is there any, I mean, do you, don't lift a gift, don't look a gift horse in the mouth or do you, I mean, how do, what do you do? Like,
2: you know, if you can start to. Well, fortunately I have never had that happen. Oh, okay. So that's a good thing. But, uh, I would have to say, look, when it comes to this kind of money, remember we're talking about millions of dollars here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of vetting going on the, because at some point that if you and I were in this deal starting off in this deal. Mm -hmm. At some point, it's going to get turned over to your attorney and my attorney anyway. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it's kind of out of our hands. You know, we've made our positions clear, and then it's up to the attorneys to negotiate on behalf of each of us until we come to some kind of a resolution that we can both agree on, just like any other attorney situation. That said, there's a lot of vetting going on. And, um, you know, I think that's probably one of the reasons why it hasn't happened to me, fortunately, but okay. um, you really, we really don't have any no- way of knowing. Well, I think the bigger problem is people claiming to have money that they don't have. That happens every day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the real problem. It's not about bad money. Or money. It's about no money. <laughs> yeah. You know? And it's just absurd. I mean, people come to me all the time, and they go, oh, yeah, I have $200,000, and then you go to um, ask them for proof of funds, and they show you some blanked-out bank statement from, you know, 1989 from some guy that's <laughs> since passed away that happened to have $3 million in his bank account. That's not proof of, of anything.
3: <laughs>
2: so so re- really, that's the problem, is people having what they say they have. It's the same thing with attachments. People coming all, all, to me all the time, They I go, oh, I have so-and-so in my movie. And then I pick up the phone and I call their agent and their manager and they usually say, I don't know who you're talking about, I've never even heard of this thing. I've never heard of the person, I've never heard of the film. Mm. So it's really a lot of it, the problem in this this industry right now, and probably for a very long time, has been that people just don't have what they say they have, and that is extremely problematic. Um, I don't run into that on my end as much anymore because I do have a track record in people, pretty much conclude when they see my IMDB that, well, I must have something that I say because (laughs) the proof is in the pudding, but more often than not, um, they do have to prove up that they have what they say before we're going to, you know, put any of our resources forward.
0: Which makes perfect sense because you want to be able to... it's responsibility of vetting uh, for you as well as vetting for them because reputation being on the line.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's just it's just really important. It's really important because this is just the beginning. Raising the money is just the beginning. At that point, now you have to get the distributors involved and you have to, you know, you have to get this movie out into the world and you have to get those returns, so... How, how, there's no, there's no point in, in um. Trying to sugarcoat mm-hmm. the situation, or make it look like it's anything other than what it absolutely is.
1: How much business do you think that you probably get at this point, uh, based on your good name? I mean, I, I mean, I know that you, you've, uh, you've been in the business a long time, and I, I'm pretty sure that's something that you cultivated great relationships, and you know, to have you know a name that people know is legit. So how much do you think at this point is the fact that you've, you know, you have a great track record and, you know, and you, you get projects done.
2: I think probably most of it because, because I have been doing it a long time. And, um, because of that, I think people want to work with people who like these, as do I, I want to work with people who I feel comfortable with and, Confident in and who who have proven themselves to be, you know, to do what they say that they're going to do. So, um, most of the business that I get almost exclusively is word of mouth referrals. (laughs) Um, I do take outside projects, it's not often, but I have people call me randomly that they find me on social media networks or, um, even on my IMDb and well, you know random phone calls, I can't take unsolicited material. But um, you know, one of the things that's been great for me and for a lot of them lately is in the last couple years. I uh, it used to be I was either a hundred percent all in, executive producer, raised all the money, did the whole the whole film, or I had a pass. There was no in between. It was just sort of this void. But since then. Uh, I started doing consulting producer. And consulting producer is somewhere in between where I don't have to do the heavy lifting. The producers and the writers, they do the heavy lifting, but I'm sort of more of a coach and a guide. And as a But at the same time, I also, if they go through my, I have private one-on-one consultations available where they can sit down with me face-to-face either in my office or via Skype. And we, it's a six-week program, and we can work through all of the issues on their project. And if at the end of that project, things look good, then I will occasionally flip out of a consulting producer role in, into an executive producer role. But either way, by virtue of having spent that time together, I'll open up my resources and relationships to these filmmakers. In fact, if you look at my my um, IMDb right now, is I think, nine or ten films in development right now, and yep. at least seven of those all came from referrals who then did the one-on-one consultations, who then I became producers on their film. It's a way of me being able to get to know the filmmaker and their project, and vice versa, while at the same time they're learning and educating themselves in the process, so that when I'm sitting down in front of an investor with them on their behalf or a distributor, They are really being able to keep up with the conversation because they just went through a six-week intense training course where they learned all this stuff so they don't feel left out. And it goes back to what we talked about before with control because now they feel like they have more control over their project because they understand better what's being said about it in the room.
0: Yeah, and it also allows them as well to be able to have a chance to hear from a mentoring position as well that of somebody who has been in the trenches as well. That what exactly is the expectation? And,
2: and you know, uh, and and, 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 I, and I think every one of them would tell you the same thing. I don't pull the punches with these people. If, if they're doing something crazy, I tell them because nobody has any time for that. Mm-hmm. And if you really want to get your project done, uh, there's a way to do it and there's a way not to do it. Mm-hmm. And So I don't pull any punches. I'm very direct and honest with them. And sometimes I tell them a lot of things that they don't want to hear. But you know what? They are able to hear it. They're able to move through it. And then they go on to the next thing, and they always feel uh, 100% better having done it that way. It's kind of like going to the gym. You know, (laughs) you fight yourself, but then when you walk out of the gym, you feel really great. You say, why don't I just do that every day? It felt good. So it's kind of the same thing there.
0: Definitely, and when you're also doing the consulting as well, and as well, uh, so can you talk a little bit about like the different forms of finance that you also deal with, and the way that you, in terms of the package uh, of that, is there something that immediately turns you on or turns you off about it? Is there something that when you're taking on that consulting position that makes you say, okay, um, this is somebody to take a chance on, and this one is like, mm, no.
2: Well, I think it's kind of all of the above. I think it's almost everything we've spoken of today. Um, In terms of different forms of financing, there's equity, which is king. You know, cash, pure cash equity is king, which has uh, uh, risk attached to it, but also the upside can be enormous if the film is a hit. And then there's debt, where it comes in as a loan, and you just pay it back plus a percentage, and you're clean and free, walk away, and that, that investor doesn't own any of the future profits. There's pre sales where we can pre sell pre-sell territories around the world based on the cast and the genre. Uh, I referred earlier to minimum guarantees when distribution companies or foreign sales companies will give me a minimum guarantee of X amount of dollars that I can expect uh, based on their projections of the future sales. And then there's the tax incentive. So there's all of these different aspects of, of the financing package, and every single project is. Put together a different way, it's a different combination. Um, it really is like a big puzzle. And it's for me, as a consultant, the first thing I do is sort of evaluate what people already have. Like, where are you, what, are you, what are you coming to me with? Let me take a look at this puzzle, see how many pieces are missing. And what's missing is, and then I'll take uh, the pieces that they're missing and provide those to make the whole picture. And that's when it all starts to come together.
0: And that is if you actually have the belief element in the projects to begin with.
2: Yeah, I always say to people, I have to be able to see the other side. Somebody brings me a project and I can't see a way that this is ever going to get made or it's going to recoup or anybody's going to want it, then I I just won't. I won't look for it. The other thing I'll do occasionally is I will um, go out and check around. I'll talk to some of my colleagues and I'll say, hey hypothetically, I got this film, and it would star so-and-so, and the budget's this. What do you think? And I'll just ask around and kind of get different opinions and that kind of thing. And if I get a bunch of people saying to me, oh, that sounds amazing, I can't wait to see it, then I'm more apt to get on the project than if I have three or four people shooting down in a row and say, look, it's just not something I think we would be interested in. Then I already know it's 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 not going to happen, and there's no sense in... Uh, expending the time, energy, money, and resources to try to make it happen. Unfortunately, can't make them all.
0: <laughs> well, no. Unfortunately, we cannot make them all. It, 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 although we would all love to have them made.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true.
0: Yeah, it's like so. I just wanted to also touch briefly as well on uh, with you. It's like, how are you feeling about things like the crowdfunding models and stuff like that? Like the New indie ways that people are trying to raise that first twenty percent, and etc. And
2: I think it's great. I think it's great. I love it. Um, I I I think there's a lot more happening because of it. Um, you know, I have a rule of thumb in development that it costs roughly twenty five thousand dollars for every million of your budget, and that's where most people don't. They don't have it. They don't have that. So in the old days, we used to have to go get an investor to put that money up, and we would return it with a with a profit, and it would come out of the budget. But nowadays, everybody's going to crowdfunding to raise that 20000 25000 and it changes everything because now they have power. They're coming from a position of strength where they can actually go out and hire somebody. They can create their LLC and make it real. They can hire a casting director and get their budget and their schedule and do all of those things. So I can crowd. Funding is a great place to secure first critical money.
0: And do you find that it's like with that and the new forms of uh, distribution that also uh, are starting to pay forward, even though they can't see tangible? Uh, it's like I know that it was mentioned in an interview not too long ago that in terms of things like VOD and stuff like that, you still cannot see what the numbers look at, like for downloads versus views, etc. And- yeah. Places like Machinima and all of that—it's like with the with the two juxtaposing against each other with these new forms of funding, new forms of distribution. How is that evolving that model? In terms of, are you looking then for also perhaps to have one of those models come forward?
2: Yeah, I don't. I, don't, I think it's too soon to tell. I think of this all this stuff is happening so quickly. Um, like for example, I have two movies right just this year that came out on VOD, and VOD is the new DVD, right? I mean, DVD is gone and VOD is replaced. It. The difference is, you're right, I could look and I could get a report and I would see. I could see what, what kind of numbers we were tracking in terms of DVD. With VOD, you have to wait until you get your statement, which might be quarterly or every, every half a year. Um, and even though my movie is on all platforms, it doesn't mean anybody's watching it. So that doesn't really change the landscape for me as a producer or as an executive producer who's looking for returns for my investor. I have a film right now that's on all of the digital platforms, including Netflix and Hulu and iTunes and Amazon. And then we got all of the VOD platforms, the big ones, you know, like Verizon and DirecTV and, and those guys. And But that doesn't mean anybody we're making any money yet. It just means they're all available on that platform. And it really comes down to people's reviews and how many people click on and actually watch it or rent it or buy it, and then we'll see the revenue streams later. So it's definitely a lot more challenging than it used to be, but at this point, uh, it is what it is, and that's why I say it's going to take a couple more years for this thing to all work itself out to where everybody is happy at the end of the day.
1: You, you made an uh, interesting, um, you said uh, reviews. How important are reviews for uh, you know, um, your, your projects?
2: Oh, my God. I mean, they'll make you or they'll break you. Because, you know, what happens is if you get three bad reviews, then people start ganging up on you. <laughs> oh, wow.
0: It starts becoming a harder place to be.
2: How bad a review can I give this thing? And if you have a great one, um, all the better, right? So it's very, very important because, remember, it's, it's the consumer is the one who's going to decide. What happens with these movies? Whether they're going to go to theaters or not, based on the, how they do on those platforms, and um, you know, or whether they're going to return any revenue or not, it's completely up to the viewer. It's just like we're in the age of Yelp now, mm-hmm. when you can get on and, and you know say whatever you want to say about the restaurant that you just ate at, and I think it's a good thing because I think it's keeping people honest, and it's uh, forcing filmmakers to go out there and make quality films, because if they don't, they're going to hear about it from the general viewing public, and as a result, the film is going to fail, and it's going to domino when the investors aren't going to get the money back, and they're going to be in a terrible position. So I think um, I think that's the way it's moving, and the direction it's going in, and I think it's going to get, it's going to be more of that as, as we progress here for the next several years
1: are are critics still a big part of the uh the equation
2: uh yeah to a certain extent definitely critics i mean again not like it used to be but uh you have all these websites now which I think in blogs so from that from from that perspective you I know mean, it's not so much the New York Times or the LA times but you know it is definitely something um that's going to make it an impact one way or the other based on what the loggers saying about your, about your film.
1: I, I remember one time John Waters, uh, he, he put on a, one of his um, posters that Cisco uh, Nieper gave my film two thumbs down. And that was on the poster of his film. So <laughs> 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 I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah.
2: It's, it's, it's pretty dicey, but you know, that's why I say it is what it is. And, Uh, Look, you just don't know. You just don't know. I always tell people there is no uh, crystal ball. Uh, When you make a movie, there's three movies that you make. is the one that you wrote, the one that you shoot, and the one that you edit. And at any given point in time, the thing could crumble. You could write a really great script, and the principal photography can go off without a hitch with a great director, excellent actors, and everything is great. And then it could get destroyed in the editing room. I actually had that happen on a film, which I will not mention. (laughs) 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 And uh, that's what happens. And sometimes you just don't know. It's it's really about doing all of the things that you can. This is one of the reasons why I think it's so important to be working with people who have done this before. Because even then, you're still going to make mistakes. But at least you can help avoid making those huge, colossal career-ending mistakes you know, the suicide career mistakes that I have seen other people make and that I've come close to making myself and very fortunately I was able to avoid. Thank God for that.
0: So you uh, would say also then uh, things like, it, then it also becomes also the role of the sales agent and all of that also changes then too. Now that there's all like the idea that you can also take part of your own social media as well as also be able to help towards the yeah. marketing campaigns
2: absolutely and especially in remember we're talking about independent film here so in the independent feature film world that's very much true and i think it's going to get more be more and more so as time goes on
0: so what are you thinking of places like the afm and other markets in regards to the aspects of the changing world do you find them like a useful resource in terms of keeping up with what's new and what's trendy
2: well, yes and no. I mean, first of all, I think everybody who's a writer or a screenwriter or a filmmaker or a producer or a director or even actors, I think everybody in the industry should experience AFM once. AFM, of course, is the American film market, which is held every year here in Santa Monica, California. And um, I think it's three, four, five hundred four or 500 bucks for a pass to get in for a couple of days. And it's definitely worth it. Um, I think it's a great place to network build relationships. It's better if you have a film, particularly if it's a finished film, because that's what they're there for. They're there to buy and sell films. Um, and But the distributors and in the, in the um, foreign sales companies are doing the bidding, not the individuals walking around. You can't walk in necessarily and do that. But um, it's a great place. I've gone to AFM probably every year for the last 12 years.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: um, I split AF up, AFM up into two segments. I do the four days and I spend two days meeting with people that I want to meet and then I spend the other two days meeting with people who want to meet me. (laughs) Uh. And it works out great for me. I kind of get the best of both worlds and I really do think it's a great place for people to congregate, like-minded people, get to watch some great films and to start the beginning of the building of the process of Uh, establishing relationships with distributors because at the end of the day no matter how good a movie you make if you don't have and how much money you spend if you don't have a distributor nobody's going to see it and if nobody sees it you're not going to make the money back so you really have to have strong relationships with distributors
0: absolutely absolutely Now, a couple of other questions just before we're also going towards the wrap. It's like, what do you think is going to be the next big trend in films in terms of all the aspects that you're involved in?
2: Well, I think technologically it's going to be interactive, and I think it's going to be 4D. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: (laughs) I think 4D is coming.
3: (laughs) I agree.
2: Wow, you've been in my brain. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean that's that's what all indications are at this point, in terms of uh, that. As far as distribution is concerned, that's why I say I don't know. I, uh, all this is brand new still, in terms of all the formats and new things come popping up every day. So that's going to take some time to work itself out. But technologically, I think it's it's going to be 4D. I think 3D is pretty much run its course, and either 4D will replace it or they'll come up with something brand new.
0: <laughs> like To be able to, to uh, actually get involved into the experience and have a whole holographic image.
2: Yeah, that yeah that's why I said the interactive thing, I think, is, is definitely next.
1: Yeah. You know, someone, sh- uh, a friend of mine showed me this thing. I think it was in Russia where there was a film. They had this thing where you could, everybody would have their cell phones and you'd be watching a film and the woman in the movie would be trying you could like she would call you somehow in the movie and then you would tell the movie that the, the the person where to go in the movie like one of the people in the <laughs> audience it was crazy was cool. yeah i mean i i i forgot what the name of that was but it looked cool uh whatever that thing was i was like and it was supposed to be a real thing so uh, i'm like yeah well
2: yeah. that's the, that's the kind of thing i, I mean i think that, mm-hmm. that the you know as the technologies just continue to advance I think 10 years from now, we're not even going to recognize some of this stuff, you know? Yeah. Some of the Definitely. things that, that we think are cool now. Yeah. <laughs> so.
1: <laughs> hopefully, for, hopefully it's a good thing.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, hopefully. There was, this, there was this thing called a little while back called the VRML Dream, which allowed uh, the, uh, the play Midsummer Night's Dream that you could take on any character in there, as well as also be the director of the production as well. So,
3: wow. That's cool. These are things Very that are cool.
0: trending and changing uh, in terms of that. and Even with Machinima, we get a chance to have a little bit of that as well in, yeah, terms, uh, in terms of that. Yeah. And I just wanted one final question, though, before the, uh, we do uh, the wrap-up for you. It's like, are there any words of guidance that you'd want to impart to the up-and-coming filmmakers? Or is there something that you wanted to uh, let us know that we haven't covered?
2: Well, I don't know about more of a recap. I mean, yes, absolutely. I think my best advice to filmmakers is learn the business side. Don't get so caught up in the creative that you lose sight of the business. You know, read books, take online classes, but most importantly, build relationships with people who are already doing it successfully. I mean, although there are no guarantees, uh, you know, by being around producers, directors, writers, uh, that are working in the business on a day to basis, you'll learn a lot and potentially begin to develop the kinds of relationships where you could potentially to work together in the future. Um, that's the reason why I did the consulting thing is because people—the biggest thing that people don't have is access. They're looking for access, and but it's not just access to you know, contacts and people, but it's con- access to information. Uh, and I just really strongly believe that education in this industry is the key and you can do what I did and learn the hard way and you know take 10 years to figure it out (laughs) Mm -hmm. or you can uh, or you can go to the places where those people are like AFM and some of those events that are held around the country and around town and New York and LA and mingle with these people and get to know them on a more personal level and um, do it that way, which I think is definitely it. But it really comes down to understanding that there is a business and that it's very specific and particular and that there is a way to do business in the indie film world and there's a way not to and being able to make those distinctions so that you are prepared when you go out and finally have your script ready and you're ready to get somebody to help you produce it, know what, what those steps are going to do.
0: Absolutely. And, uh, Franco, how can people actually, uh, as, we're, uh, as we're slowly uh, coming here, it's like I wanted to know, so how does anybody get in touch with you? And talk a little bit well, more also um, about your consulting.
2: Um, well, first of all, the, uh, what my website is samacofilms.com, S-A-M-A-C-O-F-I-L-M-S.com. And I'm very accessible in terms of email. So, I'll give you my email address. People can email me directly with any follow up questions they have, maybe for this interview or any inquiries in regards to their films or the consulting services. My email is franco, franco, at samacofilms.com. Very easy to remember. And the consulting, you know, there's a couple of different ways they can go about it. Like I said, for me, it's about evaluating the project and seeing where they're at before I could make any kind of commitment as to whether I, I can get involved on the project on a consulting basis, but the two ways that are available is one is the six-week one-on-one private consultation, which, like I said, is for people who live here, is in face-to-face in, in my office in Brentwood, or, or elsewhere, there's a more convenient location sometimes. And then the other one is where I actually come on for 90 days to the project as a consulting producer and kind of get it into shape. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I said, figure out what the missing pieces are and, and provide those missing pieces. That's a little bit more intensive and I'm, I'm much more hands-on with the specific project. But So one's more educational and the other one is a little bit more hands-on, let's get your movie cranked up and started and I me advise you to get you to the place where your film is attractive to financiers. And if we can do that, and if we're successful at doing that, then there is the, the possibility that I could actually come in as their executive producer and produce the film for them or with them.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's all uh, about, like, making sure hand-in-hand in, hand in relationships and making sure also that it's as strong a team as that can humanly be. And we definitely, definitely, definitely wanted to thank you. And Kinte is there any final words also from you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, thank you so much for your time. And, uh, you know, I've learned quite a bit, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing, you know, um, Some of your past work that I haven't had a chance to see, as well as what you have coming up uh, next. Um, Also, you can you guys can get me at Kentayf. um, And uh, thank you once again,
2: Franco. Okay, guys, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It Was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you. It was amazing, and the information was fantastic.
2: (laughs) Thank you. All right, take care, everyone.
1: All right, and uh, Grayson, how can people get you?
0: Yes, you can get me on three places. There, Well, actually more than three places. I think that if you can't find me on the internet, you're not stalking me hard enough. But it, there's www.pastlivesproductionsinc.net as well as there's also my Facebook page, as well as the group Facebook pages. Um, goodness, there's Bizipedia, there's LinkedIn, there's a whole lot of locations, as I said. The, I, I think that if you just Pretty much Google me. You can find me anywhere. All right. And definitely look out for uh, for some of the up and coming things that are coming up also. And as we said, uh, this being our, uh, our start of our season of movie time, we'll be seeing you also next time at movie time.